Friends, if you would turn in your copy of Scripture, if you have it, to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, and if you don't have your own copy of Scripture, that can be found on page 775 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Jonah chapter 3. So, over the last couple weeks, we've seen how God called a reluctant prophet to go to a great city called Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrians, and it's roughly about 500 miles away from where Jonah was. It took a month to get there, uh, as uh, travel was in that day. So just imagine for a moment that God called you to go to a wicked city that had no respect for you or for your God, and you had to, for 30 days, be on a ship and sail to the city, a great city, called Nineveh. Who, as we'll see, or yeah, as we'll see next week, I'll, I'll, I'll expound a little bit more on Nineveh, but just how wicked and perverse the people of Nineveh were, were. And you are called to go there, and you have to, you know, as it gets closer, you're getting more and more nervous as you know that you probably will be killed for being a martyr to the truth. And so Jonah, I'll be really honest, like me, oftentimes ran away and find, found shelter in a boat going the opposite way. Wanted to run away from this difficult and really impossible task and really futile task in human terms. We heard of God's violent grace in chapter 2 where Jonah was graciously swallowed by a fish. And just as a side note, I do believe that Jonah is an actual account. It's not just a metaphor. Um, I think that just as it relates to how we understand the historicity of different stories, this again is a parenthesis. I'm not getting into things yet. But if you see like, oh, he's going to Nineveh. Oh, he's from Gath Hefer. Oh, he is prophesying in the 8th century B.C. Those are markers that God has given us to say this is an actual event that happened. And I do think it's also instructive for us. Just like all things, as Paul says, all of these things were written for your instruction so that through the historicity, through God's faithfulness to His actual historical people, that you too would find rest for your own souls. And then Jonah was spewed out right in in verse 10 of chapter 2, and the Lord spoke to the fish, the obedient fish, and Jonah was vomited out on dry land. Well, the main point of our passage today in Jonah chapter 3 is quite simply this, is that repentance is simple and a difficult and painful gift. Let me say it a little little bit different. Repentance is a simple and painful gift from God to you. Unless you think, I, I try to be pretty vulnerable with, with you all, both in my preaching and then in my own interactions with you, uh, lest you all think that I've got it figured out and then I'm dispensing with, with wisdom from the, uh, from the mountain. But uh, just yesterday, uh, I sinned against my, my family. I yelled at my family in, sin, in, in a sinful act of anger because I wasn't getting what I wanted, whether it be a house that's peace and quiet or you know, whether I don't get to have a certain amount of time to just read by myself. But I got angry with my family. And then, and then the Lord graciously gave me the gift of repentance yesterday to say I'm sorry to my family. 
And yet, there were repercussions for that, right? I remember crying in the shower and then coming out and saying, Ashley, I'm so sorry. I don't even know sometimes how I can be a believer. I don't even know sometimes how, why I'm pastoring a church. Maybe you oftentimes have felt that your sin is too much. It's impossible for you to carry. And I think the Lord would speak to you this morning if that's you. If you oftentimes have found that your sin is too much and that you are repenting yet again for that same thing that you repented for just last week or even just yesterday, the Lord would want to speak to you this morning to say that repentance is a gift. It's a simple gift, but it's also a painful gift. And so we're going to look at two characters in our story today. We're going to first look at the town crier. The town crier. We really don't have town criers right now. This is point number one if you're taking notes. We don't really have a town crier, but a town crier would go into the middle of a city, the middle of a a place, and declare what the king wanted him to declare to people. Whether he wanted to or not. He was given a message, and that message was meant to be declared to the people, and then that message was to be carried out to other people. And so we see Jonah here, like a town crier, that he would go on this mission to declare God's Word. Look at verse 1. Then the Word of the Lord came to God's grace and mercy, even here. Did you see it? That God's Word came to Jonah the second time. The second time. He came to him in chapter 1 and said, go to Nineveh, that great city. And in fact, if you look at the quotation... It's almost identical. There's one difference of just a preposition in the original language, but but it's the exact same word. Go to Nineveh and proclaim what I tell you. Comes a second time. And the Lord would have Jonah know that he's not done with him because his purposes haven't been accomplished yet. And the Lord will continue to knock on the door of your life until He's done with what He wants to do with you and through you, whether you want to or not. Because in the obedience, as we'll see in a moment, in the obedience is actually the goodness and the love and the joy of communing with God. You know, a lot of times we think of obedience as this burden that we got to carry. That would be a wrong way to view obedience. Obedience is an outworking of what's in your heart. And if God has pricked your heart and made it bleed for other people, then you want to go and tell others. That's the beauty of it all. Look at verse 2. What is this message that comes to Jonah a second time? He says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Brothers and sisters, too often we can think that due to spiritual laziness on our part, I haven't read my Bible in several days, I haven't prayed for several days, my spiritual life looks pretty cruddy, or that due to worldliness that we've imbibed a lot of the message of the world, it's begun to shape us and make us look a lot more like the world than look like Jesus, or that due to fear we have, if we are obedient, what if I actually do that? What if I do what God has called me to do? What what friendships am I going to sacrifice? What respect and honor am I going to put at risk with others due to doubts that you may have in your own heart of whether God is good and powerful and loving? 
We often can think that due to these things that God is done with us. Or that God doesn't want us. But one of the points of this story is to show that God uses struggling sinners to accomplish His purposes. God uses struggling sinners to accomplish His purposes. We already know the struggle that uh, Jonah was having. And we'll learn more about that in the next chapter. We get into the, the mind of Jonah as what, what, was really the, what was really going on in chapters 1 and 2. Well, we're going to find that next week, so stay tuned. But the author wants to make a point here. Did you catch it in verse 2? He says, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city. He goes and speaks to this small prophet to go to a great city. It's as if God, if you heard the audible voice of God saying, I want you to go to downtown Greenville and I want you to go to the plaza and I want you to declare the message that I give you. Some of you I can already tell because you're shuddering a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm saying that God is telling you right now to go to downtown Greenville in the plaza in front of, I think it's anthropology right there. You, you can see some of the street preachers that are there and you're going to do that. You're supposed to do that. And you're like, no, 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 I don't, no, no, he didn't tell me that. I didn't hear that. See, all of us feel that, and we ought to feel that because that's what Jonah was also feeling in his own heart. That there's this inner turmoil within him to stand and to declare this message that surely he would be killed for. And that's what Jonah was feeling as a country bumpkin. I made mention that he was from the northern part of the the tribe of Israel or the nation of Israel up in the northern part of there. And he was nothing more than just a, a country bumpkin. And he was to go to this great city of commerce. You know, we, we hear this story. He, he went for a three days journey. It was a three days journey in breadth. And there's been a lot of commentaries as to how big was this. There's, was it 51 miles across? There's some commentaries. Or was it around the city? It doesn't matter. It was really big. And it was a place where there was a whole lot of metropolitan life a whole lot of educated people, a whole lot of different nationalities. and That would be the place that you would go to get cultured. And so this uncultured prophet from an, another religion of another God came to this people. And God says, I want you to go to that great city. It doesn't make sense. You would think, no, why don't you call somebody who's really well educated or at least speaks the language? At least knows the culture. He says, no, 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 I'm calling you in all of your country bumpkinness to go to downtown and declare this message to the educated, to those who would scoff at you, to those who will make fun of you, and to those who might kill you. This is the message that I'm giving you, Jonah. You need to go to this affluent, educated people. Look at verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. And we see that the message that he was given is not a savory message. It's not that God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Look at verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yara. I've oftentimes done this, and you might have done this too, where you see in downtown Greenville where somebody is proclaiming a message of doom and gloom, and you're like, there we go again. 
Well, that's the message that Jonah was given. He was given the doomsday message that we make fun of. Of people that are saying, 40 days and God will destroy this city. You know, and in fact, as I was on my walk this morning, I was like, you know what would be really fun? Is I was going to stand up here and I was going to say, yet 40 days and Greenville will be destroyed. And I was going to walk away, but I didn't want it to be too theatrical because I don't want it to seem like, oh, what's Matt doing? No. That's all he was saying, and that's the message that he was giving him because it wants to highlight what God was doing in this message. That God was about saving people. It's not in the eloquence of the speaker. Praise God. It's not in how well-educated the person is. Praise God. It's in the obedience of going and in the simple declaration, 40 days and you will be destroyed unless you turn. You don't have to know all of the apologetic arguments. The five proofs for God's existence and then all of the inner workings of the human heart to be able to go and tell someone that God is calling out to you to follow Him. Praise God. I want you to notice something else that this is not Jonah's message. This is God's message. Go and tell them what I tell you to tell them. This is God's message. The call God makes on our lives is not to innovate things, but to discover and to relay it to His creatures, to the ones that He loves and that He pleads with to repent, to turn away from their evil ways. The calling on each of our lives is this. To simply obey. To simply obey. One of my, some, many of you know that I was involved in Campus Crusade for Christ. I think it's called Crew now um, in the university system. And Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade, would often say that what is successful evangelism? And you're like, well, when somebody gets converted, that's successful. And he said, no, successful evangelism is being faithful to proclaim the message. And you leave the results to God. And that's what you are called to do. That's what I am called to do. And that's what Jonah is called to do. It's a simple message. And then the results are left to God, not to you. And so if, if you share your faith with a coworker, or a friend or a neighbor, and they don't say, yes, please, where's the water? I need to be baptized. No, if, they don't, if that doesn't happen, that's okay. God calls you, though, to the obedience that you know. Right? He's not calling you to convert anybody. And that's what we see here is that it's, it's just a few words. It's one sentence. And the Lord says, I'm the one who is converting people. I'm the one who is having the results that I want. And we can often hem and haul and explain away God's call on our lives. I'm not eloquent enough. I'm not educated enough. I, I don't care enough. I haven't read my Bible enough. I haven't prayed enough. I haven't fasted enough. I, I haven't studied enough. Take your pick. Maybe it's a smorgasbord of all those things. But what you know, what are you doing with? With the obedience, with the love and command that God has given you, that you have read in His Word, that you're hearing even now, what is He calling you to? That's all that you are asked to do and told to do. We hem and we haul. Why? Because quite frankly, it's harder it's harder to do what God calls us to do. It's, it's harder than being cynical 
about the world around us. It's harder to love our neighbor than being judgmental about their life choices. Our natural tendency is to look at others and judge them. To stand over them and to criticize them. Rather than exercising compassion and generosity and being welcoming to the other, to someone outside of us. The Lord calls us to do the harder thing, to move towards those who you don't like. Perhaps this morning, friend, you need to be reminded that God has simply called you to listen and obey Him. He's not calling you to convert Nineveh. He's not calling you to convert Greenville or Anderson or Easley or your neighborhood HOA, even though you would like to. Consider. Consider the needs of Greenville. Consider the needs of wherever you live. Wherever you go to work. Consider the needs of our Brandon community. It should be overwhelming to you. If you take and hit the pause button and you're like, oh my goodness. There is so much need here. There is so much brokenness in our neighborhood. There is so much need in the suburban neighborhood where you live. Behind closed doors, what's said and what's not said and what's done and undone. It should, be, it should just, just wash over you like, I can't do it. That's right. That's the point. That great city. God calls you to go and to love to love, to love people who don't know what they need, to be scoffed at for being religious, for being a Jesus freak, or whatever the common parlance is for today. People who don't know that their heart's longings are found in God. God is calling you to go serve them because they don't know. They don't know. In the day-to-day even, washing dishes and praying, Have you ever considered that? That that, uh, if you are sitting and washing dishes, that is just as much a spiritual act as going and talking to somebody about Jesus. You can pray while you wash dishes. I would encourage you to read a book called um, Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. If you've not heard of that, it's a little small book. I would encourage you to read it. That Even in the washing of dishes can be a worship experience. Praying for those. Praying for your neighbor, right? Welcoming your neighbor and listening to them. That can be beautiful. That can be a point of where God converts people. Sharing and taking a meal. Those are spiritual things. Those are not just merely taking care of needs, but they're taking care of needs because Jesus has called you to care for others. And then, fighting sin sin of your mind and the sin of your heart, where you click, where you go when your thoughts are not being occupied with other things, what you think about, what you crave. Fight that. Those can be beautiful things where God has called you to obey Him because He loves you. And you'd think that this country bumpkin who goes to Nineveh would be scoffed at. And that's what everybody, because that's what I've done, and maybe that's what you've done, is you see doomsday prophets in downtown Greenville. And that's what I would expect if we're honest. That, oh, yeah, that's that's good one there. You know, if you were 
taking straws. It's like, there you go, buddy. I'm, I'm not doing that, right? But there's something very beautiful in this dark message. See, this word right here, overthrown, it has two meanings. So it can either mean overthrow, like we see quite literally here in our text, or it can also mean to be turned around, to be turned over. Let me read it this way. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be turned around, shall be made new. And I think that that's what we see in our next person that we're looking at, or next character. And that's the second point, the crying town. So we looked at the town crier, and yes, I was trying to be cute with the terminology so it sticks in your mind, and then the crying town. Right? I apologize, but I, I think it's pretty good, but whatever. Verse 5, look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Let that land on you for a second. <laughs> and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And this is not the reaction that you would expect. It's not the reaction that any of us, if we're honest, would expect from those who are the farthest away from God. They believed God. Yeah, right. No, they believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth this image of repentance. As one commentator put it, he said, the response of the Ninevites is presented here in terms of what God expected from His own people, but frequently did not receive. Just like the sailors that we heard about, just like the fish, but not like His people. Not like you and me a lot of times. That we hear God's Word and we don't do what the Ninevites did. Reminds me of our, our Lord's words of the prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors will enter the kingdom of God before you, righteous ones. And may that not be true of us. Because my friends, what is happening here is repentance. A turning around and overthrowing of all that they had put their confidence in. Repentance. And it didn't stop with the people. Look at, look at verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And then verses 7 and 8, it keeps going. <clears throat> and the king issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. How Nineveh responded and how particularly the king responded is very instructive for us in how we understand what repentance is. What we see here is that the people didn't say, I'm sorry, can you just forget that? No, they were cut to the heart of what they had done against God and against their neighbor. It's very instructive. He doesn't just merely say, I'm sorry and I feel really bad. Can we just move on? No, we have what is called in literature a chiasm. If you, that's a, a fancy word for an X, right? So, so it highlights the center point of what's happening in this passage. So let me put it this way. 
is that the king, what what does it say? The king arose from his throne, he took off his robes, he put on sackcloth, and then he sat down. Do you see that? You see that progression? And so what is that trying to instruct us in? What repentance looks like. Repentance affects every facet of your life. Not just what people know about, but every facet of your life. He arose out of his position as being in authority over the entire country of Assyria. He arose from that. He said, I'm not sitting in that position of authority. I'm arising out of that. I'm not finding my significance in that. And I'm taking off this robe, what marked him as rich and important, that set him out from the rest of the people in Assyria. And he put on the robes of mourning. And then he sat down, not in a throne, but in ashes, to signify that from the dust he came into the dust he will return. Repentance, if you're looking for a definition, and I'm going to get at it somewhere here. Repentance, quite simply, is ceasing to find confidence in yourself. Repentance is simply this, ceasing to find confidence in yourself, in your possessions, in your titles, in your accomplishments. Ceasing to identify as something other than a creature who will die, who will rot, who will return to the dust. And we say, I am not all that and a bag of chips. That's a reference to a song back in the day. I'm not all that. And you can say that. That's what true biblical repentance is. It's not saying, hey, look what I've done. Look who I am. Look at my resume. He says, no, I too am a creature. For people who have had their lives shaken of being confronted with their sin, true biblical repentance is a turning away from what you put confidence in other than God. Let me read that again. True biblical repentance is a turning away from what you put confidence in other than God your prestige, admiration of others, being accepted by your friends and peers. To not let others' opinions prop you up or tear you down, but to live exposed to the eye of God, your Creator, and to see you have broken your relationship with your Creator. That you've grieved Him, and yet you turn again to Him. That's true biblical repentance. I preached on forgiveness in Obadiah just a few weeks ago. And just as I said, forgiveness is not something that we can muster up from our own heart. Repentance is not something that we can just buckle down and do. Repentance is a gift from God just as much as forgiveness is a gift from God. Because, friends, each day, Each day we're confronted with our sin and our need to turn from fruitless and faithless idols who can never save you. Yes, we confess our sin together each week. Why do we do that? Because we realize that we too, like John Calvin said, we make our hearts are constantly making idols of things. They're constantly manufacturing new idols, prettier idols, sneakier idols. We confess our sin each week because that 
is what the Christian life is. As Martin Luther said, that the Christian life is a life of repentance. In fact, one of the great battles in the Protestant Reformation stemmed from this issue of indulgences and doing penance. Right? If, you, if you do this, then that, that means that you're contrite over your sin and then God will accept you. If, you. if you put this money in this coffer, then God will accept you because that shows that you're really sad. Well, this is what Martin Luther in his 95 Theses, the very first thesis was this. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's not a one and done deal. It's not a raise your hand at a tent revival or a youth group retreat or just a moment in time, but it's every day raising your hand saying, yep, I need that. I need that. I need that. But listen to his next four. I don't know if anybody's read his 95 theses, but let me read the next four of those. This word repentance cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance. That is, confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. And just to give you a little uh, explanation on that, as one commentator put, he says, pious actions, friend, and prayers can never merit or guarantee divine forgiveness. Pious actions and prayers can never merit or guarantee divine forgiveness. Thesis 3 says this, yet it does not mean solely inner repentance, like I'm just really sorry, I'm really broken over my sin. Such inner repentance, it is that, but it's not just that is what he's saying. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. That's another way of saying I will make practical steps to not do that again. That's true biblical repentance. It's not just saying, man, I don't want to do that again, but actually next time I yell at you, please keep telling me. <laughs> That's true biblical repentance. and saying, I don't trust my own heart. I need to set guardrails and guidelines and parameters in my life so that I won't do that again. I will cut off my arm. I will pluck out my eye. Whatever it takes so that I will not sin against you, my neighbor again, and so that I won't sin against God again. We see in the king's call for all the people to do what? Disrupt their daily lives. Repentance is not convenient. It ought not to be. It's really hard to eat a steak with one arm. But that's what God calls you to do. He calls you to do the inconvenient thing so that you might gain a reward that's greater than the physical body. It's better to enter into the kingdom of heaven than to go in with two eyes and two arms. Be about the work of inconvenient obedience. Note, and he says this, he says that the penalty of sin remains. This is comforting for me in that argument that I had yesterday. The penalty of sin remains until our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. There are ramifications. There are results of your sin that will remain until we enter the kingdom of heaven. Note the last one. We will never be done repenting as a result. 
turning from our idols every day, taking up our cross daily to use our Lord's language until we get to heaven. True repentance doesn't presume to receive. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. What does the king say? He says, who knows? Do all of these things, people of Nineveh. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. God does not owe you. It's not like some folks I've heard saying, well, I'm going to keep sinning because it's God's job to forgive me. No, it's not. No, it's not. God doesn't owe you anything. He, he may turn. He may relent. We've grown so accustomed in our Christian circles to say, no, 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 that's not, that's not the equation. <laughs> no, that is. He may relent. He may turn. I'm not presuming upon His kindness. Don't presume upon the kindness of God. But you approach His throne and say, God, will you please forgive me? Even as we were reading just a moment ago, Lord, would you please do this? I, I have no right and I have no, I have no claim upon your forgiveness. It's entirely up to God whether He forgives or not. It is entirely up to the person you have offended and sinned against to forgive you. But your call, friend, is to do what you know is right, and that is to repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is in our midst. Turn from yourself. Turn from all that you value that is not God. It's not based upon your contrition either. Feeling sorry for what you have done is only one step in the process of repentance. And it's a gift from God. You can't muster up the feeling that you need. Like even yesterday, I was like, I don't really feel sorry. I feel justified in being angry. It's like, that's not good. It took praying and asking God and saying, I, I don't feel sorry. Why? Maybe you don't feel sorry for that sin that you continue to do day after day after day. Ask God to convict you. Ask God to break into your heart and to break you. And when the Holy Spirit pricks our heart, and it's painful, there ought to be a result. There ought to be resulting actions as a result. And one of the ways I think that we can get, as one author put, a broken heart, that's another way of talking about true biblical repentance, one way to do that is what he writes here. He says, we must be aware that one of the biggest hindrances to having a broken heart, or what true repentance is, biblically speaking, that we need to realize that one of the biggest hindrances is our neglect of the relational aspect of sinning. Hear this. By this, I mean that we can view sin as a failure of performance rather than a fail, failure of intimacy. Let me say that again. We can view sin as a failure of, man, I messed up, as, as opposed to a failure of intimacy with God. The only grief we experience then is, to, is disappointment in our inability to do what is right. Man, why did I do that again? Huh, you think I'd know better. As opposed to, I have despised the living God. Let that land on you. God doesn't owe it to you. It's a gift, oh God, that you would grant it to each of us, that we would be repenting, struggling sinners. But here's the beautiful part. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, 
how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Praise God. He relented of the disaster He said He was going to do. Now, did God repent? It says, I think as the King James uh, wrongly interprets that, no, He did not repent. And I think our translation is a little bit better. He relented. Why? He's not like Allah of the Muslim faith. To where you can get to heaven and then just by a snap of his fingers, he goes, nah, you're not coming in. God is not fickle like that. God relents based upon a promise he made very clear through another prophet named Jeremiah. Jeremiah 18, 7 through 8. You want to write that down and look at this because sometimes people say, well, God, God relented here. God changed his mind. Well, no, no. There's a condition to this, right? And Jeremiah made it clear in Jeremiah 18, 7 through 8. He says, If at any time I, being God, declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent, same word, of the disaster that I intended to do to it. If you do this, then this will happen. If they repent, then I will relent. And my friends, each one of us this morning has the opportunity to decide whether you will be overturned or turned around. If you feel a slight tweak in your heart toward turning, that's a gift from God. If you know what that sin is, you're like, God, I can't get victory over this. You feel conviction about that. that. That's a gift from God. Don't, don't let go of it. But the converse is also true. If you find yourself yawning or scoffing at such a message, my call to you is to beware. To beware. Don't presume upon the kindness of God because in 40 days you too will be overturned if you don't repent of your ways. Let me end by saying this, friends. We're all struggling sinners. Every single one of us. Every single one of us has some kind of sin that we don't talk about or we won't let go of. Some kind of idol that we, like Gollum, like to pet. Like to guard against anybody taking it from us. We all have that. We all are struggling against sin and we will until we go to glory. And we're in Christ's presence we struggle against our own flesh and selfish desires it ought to be that way we recognize our identity as sinners who struggle in this life but our struggle is built upon the fact that God is ready to forgive he's ready to forgive he promised he would forgive based upon his promises in Jeremiah 18 if he weren't then there'd be no sense in talking about repentance it'd be futile It'd be useless. It'd be stupid. Unless God said, if you do this, then I will relent. Listen to the way that Martin Luther ended his 95 theses. The last two theses say this. Christians should be exhorted to be diligent in following Christ, their head, through penalties, through death, and through hells. And thus, be confident of entering into heaven through many tribulations rather than through the false security of peace. Not a pleasant message to 
to hear, but it is a necessary message that unless you too repent, you will be like we will see in a few months, like Nineveh, who was overturned. So what will you do this morning with that sin? Will you, will you not put confidence in it anymore? Will you turn around from your evil ways or will you be overturned on the last day? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that none in this room, none hearing this message would be overturned, but instead this morning would turn from their ways, look to Jesus, the One who laid down His life, the One who gave us what we cannot muster up from ourselves, the One who offers to each of us the gift of repentance and reminds us that we are to go about the mortification of the flesh so that we too might enter the kingdom of heaven. And we do that not in our own strength, but through the power of the Holy Spirit who indeed will come if we ask Him. So we pray that You would help us this morning to turn again to You. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.